How do you picture Jesus? Do you picture him with feathered hair and a well-manicured beard? Do you picture him being passive and soft-spoken, probably having soft hands that smelled like some strawberry lotion from Bath and Body Works? How do you picture Jesus? Do you picture his quiet times when he got alone with his father to pray as being times of peace and tranquility? Do you picture Jesus just moseying through his 33 years and milling around until his crucifixion? Do you picture Jesus on autopilot, easily resisting temptation? How do you picture Jesus? The writer of Hebrews wants to destroy your pictures of Jesus and cause you to see just how Jesus lived his life as the God-man. The writer of Hebrews wants you to picture Jesus growing in faith. He wants you to picture Jesus growing spiritually. Because our tendency is to picture the spiritual life of Jesus as being static. The evangelical tendency is to picture Jesus as being in a fixed spiritual state. We think that he never grew spiritually. We think that because Jesus was the God-man, because he was 100% God, because he lived a sinless life, then he must have coasted through his life with the greatest of ease. Almost as if Jesus' greatest struggle would have been just the fact that he had to wait 33 years to accomplish his father's mission. As if being patient was the hardest thing he had to do. It is true that Jesus never sinned and that he always delighted in and always did the will of his heavenly father. That's true. But that doesn't mean that Jesus' spiritual life was static. It doesn't mean that Jesus never grew spiritually. In fact, quite the opposite is true. Jesus actually lived the most dynamic of all spiritual lives precisely because he always delighted to do his Father's will. Jesus' spiritual life was one of radical growth. It was dynamic. It was not static. And it was far from boring and far from easy. In fact, Jesus had the loudest, hard-fought, most Kleenex-using, tear-stained, epic, quiet times ever, ever. And now let me show you from God's Word. Look at Hebrews chapter 5, verses 7 through 9, and hear the word of the Lord. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. What does the writer of Hebrews want us to know about Jesus? What does it mean that Jesus learned obedience through what he suffered? What in the world does that mean? That he learned obedience through what he suffered? What does the phrase being made perfect mean? If Jesus was perfect, 
he was 100% God, which we believe he was, then how can the writer of Hebrews speak of Jesus being made perfect? What does all of this mean? Well, we're going to look at those two phrases, that Jesus learned obedience through what he suffered and that he was made perfect. So the first one we're going to look at, he learned obedience through what he suffered. First, understand that this phrase, he learned obedience through what he suffered, is not referring to Jesus' divine nature as God. When the writer of Hebrews says that Jesus learned obedience, he's talking about the incarnation, about the fact that Jesus was a human being. And that's why he says, in the days of his flesh, in his human nature, Jesus learned obedience. He did not learn obedience in eternity past because Jesus has always obeyed and always submitted to God the Father. He's done that for forever. So this is speaking about how Jesus learned obedience as a human being living on the earth. As a human being with eyes and ears and a spleen and toenails, etc., What did Jesus do in his flesh as a human being, in his body, all the days that he lived on the earth? Well, the writer of Hebrews says he offered up prayers and supplications. Now, this has to be speaking about his human nature as a human being because in his divine nature, Jesus was omniscient. He knew all things and he was omnipotent and he could do all things. So he wouldn't need to pray in his divine nature. Let me ask you, would Jesus need to offer up prayers if he already knew everything? He did know everything in his divine nature, but not in his human nature. Why offer up prayer if you already know the answers and you have the power to answer your own prayers? So this is speaking of Jesus' human nature as a human being. As a human being, Jesus needed to pray and to cry out to God. As a human being, Jesus needed assistance, he needed help, he needed power, and that's why he prayed. As God, he had all power. But in his human nature, in his physical body, he needed strength, he needed wisdom, he needed power, he needed help. And that's why he prayed and cried out loud prayers for help. So what does it mean that Jesus learned obedience through what he suffered? What does it mean that as a human being, Jesus learned obedience through what he suffered? There are two answers to what it means and two answers as to what it doesn't mean. So let's talk about what it does not mean. When we talk about Jesus as a human being, learning obedience through what he suffered, first, it does not mean that this was the first time that Jesus ever obeyed. It does not mean that Jesus never obeyed his father in eternity past. When the writer of Hebrews says that Jesus learned obedience... He is not saying that this is the first time Jesus ever obeyed. He is not saying that obedience was a new concept to Jesus. Remember, Jesus has always obeyed and submitted to God the Father for all eternity. What Jesus did in his incarnation as the God-man, as a human being in the days of his flesh, was to obey his Father in a new context. Jesus has always obeyed in eternity past, but when he took on flesh, when the word became flesh, he learned to obey his father in a new context, in the context of suffering and agony and hardship and persecution. 
In eternity past, Jesus always obeyed his Father. But when he became a man, he had to learn to obey his Father in a new context, the context of suffering, hardship, agony, and persecution. Jesus had to learn to obey his Father through and in the midst of the fires of testing and the fires of suffering. Obedience was not a new concept to Jesus. He's been obeying his Father for all eternity. But obedience as a man, as a human being, in the context of suffering and in the context of affliction, it was indeed very new to him. The second thing that it does not mean when we speak of Jesus Christ being a human being and learning obedience through what he suffered, it does not mean that Jesus finally figured out how to obey as if he had disobeyed before. It does not mean that Jesus disobeyed his father in eternity past and then once he became a man, he finally figured out how this obedience thing worked. It's not like Jesus had been struggling to obey in eternity past and that he finally figured it out once he became a man. It doesn't mean that. So what does it mean that Jesus learned obedience through what he suffered? It does not mean that in his earthly life this was the first time he, he obeyed. And it does not mean that Jesus disobeyed his father in eternity past. So what does it mean that Jesus learned obedience through what he suffered? First, It means that Jesus learned that as he obeyed his father in the context of much suffering, he learned that more suffering would come. As Jesus grew, he knew that as he obeyed his father, more suffering would come. And as he obeyed in that new suffering, he knew then more suffering would come and so on and so forth. Every single time he obeyed his father in the midst of suffering and trials and hardships, he knew in that moment as he's learning to obey his father, he knew there's more coming down the pipe soon. Here's where we should marvel at Jesus at this point in the sermon. He knew that as he obeyed his father, things would only heat up even more. He knew that as he obeyed in the midst of suffering and affliction, then more suffering and affliction would come. And knowing this, that as I obey right now, more suffering and affliction comes. Knowing this, Jesus did not resist temptation and trial. Suffering. He did not stay away from it. He did not say, I know it as I obey, more suffering's coming, so I want to push suffering away. He resisted the temptation to avoid suffering. He knew that as he obeyed his Father, then the fires would only heat up more and more, and that persecution would increase until the day came when people cried, Crucify him. He didn't run from this. He didn't run from suffering and hardship. He stayed true to his Father by the power of the Holy Spirit, knowing that each act of obedience in his life would only aggravate the intensity of his suffering. He knew that every time he obeyed his Father by the power of the Holy Spirit, that it would only aggravate the intensity of his suffering more suffering, more hardship would come. Secondly, 
when we talk about Jesus learning obedience to what he suffered, it means more than this, though. Jesus learned obedience through what he suffered. But in what sense did Jesus learn to obey? I think it means that Jesus obeyed lighter demands of his father in the context of lighter sufferings, and it was preparing him to obey greater demands in the context of greater sufferings. As Jesus obeyed the lighter demands of his father in the context of lighter sufferings, it was preparing him to obey greater demands in the context of greater sufferings. In other words, as Jesus obeyed in lighter affliction, he was growing and being prepared to obey greater demands that would come in the midst of greater afflictions. So God the Father was preparing his son for his final act of obedience, death on a cross. And God the Father was doing that by taking Jesus through less difficult situations in order to get him ready for the cross. It was as Jesus obeyed throughout his life that he was being prepared and readied for that act of of obedience whereby he would go to the cross to bear the sins of his elect people. The writer of Hebrews wants you to picture Jesus growing in faith. He wants you to picture Jesus growing spiritually as he is growing physically. The writer of Hebrews wants you to see that Jesus grew in faith. He wants you to see that Jesus had to grow and be readied for the cross, prepared for the cross. He wants you to see that it wasn't a walk in the park for Jesus, but that he had to cry out for help and trust his father to supply what he needed to live life as the God-man. Look at verse 7. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Just because Jesus was God did not mean that he had it made. He had to cry out for help. He had to fight. Jesus did not believe in let go and let God. His spiritual life was one of warfare. He fought hard. He cried out to God. Jesus did not obey God automatically. He had to get alone with his father and cry out even with tears for the power of the Holy Spirit to enable him and to accomplish the mission that his father had sent him on. Jesus was God, and since he was God, he could not have sinned. That's what I believe. Some people don't believe that. But that doesn't mean that temptations weren't real or that it was easy for him to resist. Just because Jesus was God and could not have sinned doesn't mean that it was a walk in the park for him. It doesn't mean that his temptations weren't real, it doesn't mean because he's God that it was a piece of cake to resist. Everything that he endured in his life was moving him towards his final test. 
How do the Gospels describe his greatest test? What did it look like for Jesus to resist temptation in the Garden of Gethsemane? In Luke chapter 22, 39 through 44, it says this, And Jesus came out and went as was his custom. There's a great phrase to linger over. It was his custom to get away, to be alone with his father, to cry out. And he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in an agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Jesus had to have angels strengthen him in the Garden of Gethsemane as he's resisting temptation and as he's ready to make his way to the cross. And in that moment, in great agony, he sweat great drops of blood. This was not a walk in the park. This was not easy. This was hard fought. Jesus' obedience was anything but easy. His obedience was anything but automatic. It was very difficult and hard fought by the power of the Holy Spirit. And what prepared Jesus for this moment in the Garden of Gethsemane? Was it not all the lighter demands of his father in those fires of lighter sufferings that he had experienced previously in his life? All of the temptations and tests that Jesus endured throughout his whole life were preparing him for the cross. That means... That 12-year-old Jesus in the temple that we looked at last week was not ready to go to the cross. I don't think 12-year-old Jesus was ready to go to the cross. I don't think 30-year-old Jesus was ready to go to the cross. He needed three more years of preparation after he started his earthly ministry. I think Jesus learned obedience as he suffered and he grew and became stronger until the time he was ready. As Romans 5, 6 states, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. There's a specific moment in time when God knew he will be ready to lay his life down. He will be ready to absorb the wrath of God for his elect people. There came a point in time when Jesus was ready to go to the cross. But even then, as we just read in the Garden of Gethsemane, it came with a great struggle. 33-year-old Jesus, a grown man, struggled with the weight of what lay before him in going to the cross. I don't think 12-year-old Jesus was ready for that. Bruce Ware says this, as remarkable as his obedience was each step along the way, All of these experiences were meant to build his faith and strengthen his character so that he could, in the end, succeed in fulfilling the will of the Father in choosing to endure the agony of the cross for the remission of our sins. 
And how was Jesus enabled to go to the cross? It was the years and years and years of crying out to God in prayer. That's what Hebrews 5, 7 says. In the days of his flesh, not just Gethsemane, all the days of his life, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Please, don't picture Jesus having a quiet, quiet time. Picture him crying out with loud cries and tears. Picture him fighting the good fight of faith. Picture him earnestly seeking God, crying out with tears and screaming. And what did he scream? Perhaps something like this. Oh, Father, help me. Empower me by the Spirit. I need you. My body is weak. I'm tired. My sufferings are great. The temptations are real. Satan is real. He won't give me any rest. He's always there trying to get me to disobey. Oh, my Father, help. 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 I cannot do this without you. I want to honor you and accomplish the mission you gave me. I can't do it without you. Jesus cried out to his father, the only one who could save him from death. But Jesus didn't fear death. He wasn't afraid of dying. What he feared was disobeying his father. That's the death that he wanted to be saved from. Disobeying his father was the death that Jesus cried out to God for and said, save me from this. John Piper explains it well. And when verse 7b says that he was praying and crying to the one able to save him from death, does that mean that he was mainly praying for deliverance from physical death? Was that the main aim of his praying in the days of his flesh? I don't think so, because verse 7 says he was heard. I think that means God gave him what he asked for. And verse 8 describes the effect of that answered prayer. He learned obedience. Jesus was praying for obedience, for persevering purity. In other words, Jesus knew that there was a death much worse than death. Much worse. Physical death is bad enough, and he desired that there be another way to do the Father's will than to die on the cross. But far more horrible than dying on the cross was the impurity of unbelief and disobedience. That was the great and horrible threat. So he prayed all his life against that, and he was heard by his Father. And instead of caving into sin, he learned obedience from what he suffered. Picture Jesus growing in faith. Picture him growing spiritually as he grows physically. Picture him crying out to God with loud cries and tears. Picture him having very loud, quiet times. Picture him crying and using up a whole box of Kleenex. Picture him with bloodshot eyes from weeping all night. Picture Jesus growing and maturing to a point that he would and could be ready to go to the cross. Picture him growing and learning and maturing. Picture him learning obedience through what he suffered. 
And then picture him as the writer of Hebrews describes him in verse 9. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. That's the phrase we're going to look at next. And being made perfect. In order to have an accurate picture of Jesus, we must understand what the phrase and being made perfect means. What does it mean that Jesus was made perfect. If Jesus is the sinless son of God, which is what we believe here at Grace, if he is 100% God, which is what we believe here at Grace, if he is perfect, which is what we believe here at Grace, then what does it mean that he was made perfect? Well, the Greek word can help us here because the Greek word refers to bringing something to completion or to a planned end. It means to complete or mature. So Jesus was not moving To being perfect, he already was perfect. When the writer of Hebrews says that Jesus was made perfect, he means that Jesus grew spiritually and became spiritually mature so that he would be ready to go to the cross. As I've already said, I don't think Jesus was ready to go to the cross at age 12 or even at age 30. He needed to mature or be made complete or to be readied to lay his life down on the cross. And this maturity, this completion, this perfection came about as he learned obedience in the fires of suffering. And as he learned obedience, the fires of suffering heated up more. And as he learned obedience, as they got heated up more, they would get heated up more until the point that he was ready to go to the cross. Dr. Bruce Ware says this, the perfection, maturity, or completion accomplished in Jesus then was the strengthening of his character and faith to the point where he would be able to accept fully the will of the Father to go to the cross. His being made perfect is precisely about his growth in faith and his strengthening of character and resolve through his lifetime of testings and sufferings so that he was fully mature and able through prayer and divine enablement to accomplish the work the Father had sent him to do. And as Hebrews 5.9 reminds us, it is only because he was so perfected, it was only through the pathway of this process of maturity of his character and faith that Jesus was able to be the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. It would be a good point, a good idea at this point in the sermon to marvel at Jesus. That as he went through the fires of testing and each testing and each trial and each suffering increased that fire and that heat even more, all of that was preparing him to go to the cross. 33 years of preparation of the magnitude of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, bearing the sins of his elect people on the cross. It took 33 years to prepare him to get to this moment. The cross is weighty. It's magnificent. It's incredible. And to think that Jesus would just be ready at 12 years old to go to the cross. How wrong to think. It took years for him to read the scriptures and be reminded and learn, this is my mission. Strengthen me, Father. Strengthen me. So that at that moment, he was ready to do what God called him to do. What are some applications for us? If you're tracking with the sermon and you're thinking about where this might go, you won't be surprised that our first application is this. There are no little obediences. 
There are no little obediences in the Christian walk. Every opportunity to obey or disobey, every trial, every temptation is an opportunity for us to grow spiritually and to mature spiritually. And it is how we respond in each of these situations that will prepare us for future temptations and for future growth. Look at Jesus. All of the lighter struggles were preparing him for a greater and weightier struggle, ultimately the cross. And each time as he endured and obeyed in the midst of the lighter struggles, they were preparing him for greater struggles. And all of those greater struggles were eventually preparing him for the cross. Every time he was tempted to get angry at his pesky little brothers, every time he was tempted to punch them because they bothered him and got under his skin, was an opportunity for him to resist temptation and to grow. There were no little or insignificant obediences for Jesus, and there are none for us. Think about our seemingly insignificant temptations. The little white lie, the extra glance at the pretty girl, the ever small fudging of numbers, the little bit of bitterness and unforgiveness that we hold on to. All of these are not small and they are not trivial. They are designed to perfect or mature us to enable us to learn obedience through what we suffer as we resist temptation and as we endure. Think about it. What greater opportunities might the Lord have for us if we were only faithful in the small things? We want to reach our city for Christ, don't we? We've got to be faithful in the small things. Oh, we'd love it if a revival took place and 10,000 people came here and we had services every night. We would love that. But if we're not faithful in the small things, that'll never happen. If we don't have an infrastructure here of making disciples, we would not be able to handle the influx of people. If we're not faithful in the small thing of making disciples, making disciples, we can't ever expect to make any dent in our city for the gospel. If we're just coming to hear a sermon and leave, we're not ready. Are we faithful in the small things? Are you faithful in the small things in your life? Are you faithful in family worship and discipleship and being involved in the church? All of these lighter struggles that we go through are designed to mature us and complete us for future scenarios that, that are going to be that much harder to endure. We can't expect God to do some great thing for us. We can't expect to do some great thing for God if we haven't matured through the small stuff. Every obedience matters. Small obediences matter. Second application. If you're tracking with me, you won't be surprised if we're going here. Suffering and trials are gifts from God designed for our growth. Sufferings and trials and hardships are gifts from God designed for our growth. The pathway to growth and transformation and Christ-likeness in the Christian life is paved with suffering. God designs it. 
He takes us through hardships and difficulties so that we will grow and mature. And ultimately, he does it so that he will get glory. But that's a given here at Grace. But he takes us through hardships and difficulties so that we will grow and mature. And when you begin to understand that God takes you and I through sufferings and trials and hardships, because it is only through these hardships that we grow, when you begin to understand that, that God's taking me through this because he wants me to grow and mature, when you begin to understand that, then you begin to have the right perspective. And that perspective is this. God takes us through these hardships because he loves us. That means that whatever you're going through right now is proof of his love. As Harry Reader said, asking the potter to stop molding you to avoid pain and suffering is understandable. But in reality, you're asking him to stop loving you. You ever been tempted there to say, God, please stop molding me and putting the pressure on me and transforming me because it's painful and there's so much suffering. It's understandable to do that. But what we don't realize is when we pray for that, we're asking God to stop loving us. He loves us and therefore he takes us through suffering and trial. Think about Jesus. How unloving it would have been if God the Father did not prepare his son Jesus for the cross. How unloving if God the Father told 12-year-old Jesus that he would go to the cross immediately after he left the temple that day in Luke 2. Jesus wasn't ready then. So God takes him through trial after trial so that Jesus will be ready. He'll be complete and perfected and matured to endure the cross. All of the trials and sufferings in Jesus' life were proof of his Father's love. And all of our trials and sufferings and hardships are proof of God's love for us too. They are proof of God's love for us because in taking us through these trials and the hardship and the suffering, what God is doing, he is preparing us for something in the future that we would not be able to handle right now. You think what you're going through now is hard? If you could get in a time machine and go five years into the future, you wouldn't be able to handle it. God's doing a work in your heart now to prepare you, to mature you, to complete you so that you'll be ready for what comes five years down the road, 10 years down the road, 20 years down the road. Whatever you are going through right now, it's God loving you and preparing you for what will happen in the future. Why? Because you couldn't handle what's coming in the future right now. That's his love grace. That's what he did for his son Jesus. He, he took him through trials to prepare him. Oh, how good he is to prepare us. Now, ultimately, we know we can't do it in our own strength. We know that. But God takes us through hardships to perfect us, to mature us. The third thing, when we look at Jesus' life, we see this truth. The Christian life is war. If you signed up for Christianity and you thought it would be a life of ease and rest, then I'm sorry, you bought a lie. Christianity is war. It is a constant fight and struggle to say no to sin and yes to the promises of God. 
That means the Christian life is never lived on autopilot. It is not one of passivity. It is not one of let go and let God. It's war. And that's what we see when we look at Jesus' life. He cried out loudly and with tears saying, God, I don't want to disobey you. Help me, help me. And that's what you should do when you're tempted. To say, God, help me right now. I don't want to disobey. I don't want to harbor bitterness. Help me, God, help me. And he will help you. If anyone could have ever lived their life on autopilot, couldn't the sinless son of God do that? But he couldn't. He fought tooth and nail. He labored to obey. He agonized in the midst of the fires of testing that his father put him through. He fought as he was empowered by the Spirit of God. And we too fight sin by the power of the Spirit and with the Word of God. We too persevere by the grace of God. God's grace doesn't produce lazy Christians who are passive. God's grace activates our resolve to fight sin. That's what God's grace does in the mind and in the heart of the disciple of Jesus Christ. It activates our resolve to fight sin, to hate sin, and to live for God's glory. The Christian life is war grace. It was war for Jesus, and it's war for us. Which is why Ed Welch says this, there is a mean streak to authentic self-control. Self-control is not for the timid. When we want to grow in it, not only do we nurture an exuberance for Jesus Christ, but we also demand of ourselves a hatred for sin. The only possible attitude toward out-of-control desire is a declaration of all-out war. There is something about war that sharpens the senses. You hear a twig snap or the rustling of leaves and you are in attack mode. Someone coughs and you are ready to pull the trigger. Even after days of little or no sleep, war keeps us vigilant. And that's how Jesus lived every moment. His senses were sharpened. He would hear a twig snap and be in attack mode. The devil was there constantly trying to get Jesus to sin, trying to get him to quit. War kept Jesus vigilant. And that's why he cried out loud cries with tears to the one who could save him from the death of unbelief and disobedience. That's the death that Jesus feared, was disobeying his father. That was the great and horrible threat his whole life, which is why Satan was there, constantly trying to trip him up. So Jesus prayed all his life against that, and he was heard by his father. And instead of caving in to sin, he learned obedience from what he suffered. Picture Jesus growing in faith. Picture him growing spiritually. Picture him being readied by his father as he's taken through the fires of suffering and hardship 
See him learning obedience through what he suffered. See God the Father preparing his son for the cross where he would go and lay his life down for his elect people, where he would have his father turn away, where he would have his father pour out all of his wrath upon his son for your sin and mine. Picture Jesus being prepared for that moment when God would unleash the full fury of his wrath upon his son, for sinners and rebels like you and me. Picture Jesus his whole life moving towards that moment, being prepared for that moment when he would say, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Picture him growing in faith, maturing spiritually as he's growing physically. Picture him being prepared for the cross which is what we're about to sing about right now. But let's pray first. Father, we marvel at your son. We marvel that he would even take on human flesh. We marvel at the God-man, 100% God, 100% man with those two natures united in one person. We marvel at Jesus' resolve as he was empowered by the Spirit to resist temptation and to stay focused on the mission that you had called him to. We marvel at your son who willingly laid his life down for rebels and sinners like us. We marvel that you would offer amnesty to people like us because of Jesus. Would you give us grace to obey in the little things. Give us grace to be faithful in the little things. Give us grace to be a church that is busy making disciple, making disciples, busy building that infrastructure so that would you move someday in this city and in this church, we would be ready. Would you give us grace, Father, to understand and come to grips with the fact that suffering is a gift from you, that it's proof of your love. And God, would you give us your grace to help us to understand that the Christian life is war? Would you activate our resolve to fight sin by your grace? And would we take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, and live for your glory? Do those things as we direct our attention to your son and as we sing about the cross now, we ask in Jesus' name, amen.